Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and today we're talking about bilingualism. Now, according to the basic law, Hong Kong is a bilingual territory with English and Chinese official languages and of equal status. It's rather doubtful, however, that Hong Kong is a bilingual society. When we speak of bilingualism, we're usually assuming an equal facility in two languages. Most of us who struggled to learn a second or other languages look on true bilinguals, if we know any, with respect and envy. Bilingualism is a social and intellectual asset. It's an educational advantage and a marketable skill. But what does it mean to be bilingual? How is it different from being able to make yourself understood, more or less, in more than one language? How is bilingualism acquired? What is its psychology and how is it experienced? Can it be lost? Many people in the world, including some with little formal education, can move easily between languages. Others seem just unable to master another language, no, no matter how hard they try. The process of language acquisition is not fully understood, and the study of bilingualism may be one of the best ways to help us unlock the mysteries of language aptitude and language use. I'm discussing bilingualism today with two Hong Kong linguists who have studied this phenomenon for a professional lifetime, Professor Virginia Yip of the Chinese University of Hong Kong and Professor Stephen Matthews of Hong Kong University. They are co-directors of the Childhood Bilingualism Research Center and co-authors of a book called The Bilingual Child, Early Development and Language Contact. And they are, as far as I know, the first married couple that we've had uh, on The Big Idea. And I say this not as a piece of idle gossip, but because it's actually relevant to their experience of bilingualism and bilingual education. Okay, Stephen, I want to start with you with a general question um, <clears throat> about languages. How many natural languages are there in the world? Well, we used to say 6,000, and now we say 7,000. So it's interesting it's that up. the number are actually going up. Um, and that's surprising because uh, languages are going out of use, languages are dying, and that's a cause of concern uh, to us and to linguists in general. Uh, but at the same time, new languages are coming into being. They're being created in situations of language contact. We're talking about natural languages, I mean, languages like Swahili or French. Oh, We're yes, not, yes, not for example, yes, uh, we have um, a new language known as Sheng, uh, which seems to be a... Uh, a, a mix of English and Swahili uh, being spoken okay. in, in Kenyan cities, and that's recognised as a new language. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, why are there so many languages in the world? Mm. Well, there are geographical and especially social reasons where languages develop as a marker of identity. So my colleague Umberto Ansaldo at Hong Kong U. Uh, studies this, how some of these new contact languages seem to be associated with uh, delineating a, a new identity. For example, the Macanese. Who are the Macanese? Well, they are partly Portuguese, uh, but they are half a world away from Portugal, and their identity as Macanese involves uh, Malay elements, Chinese uh, culture, uh, all kinds of stuff that's not Portuguese. So, the, so some people need to have a language in order to assert who they are and how they're different 
from yes, the that's the the finding or the claim from okay. sociolinguistic studies. But wouldn't it be a lot easier if there was only one language? Isn't that something well, to aim for? That's uh, <laughs> uh, that is uh, kind of utopia, isn't it? That comes up from time to time. Um, our usual response to that as linguists is to say that speaking the same language doesn't prevent conflict. I mean, we think of Northern Ireland, for example, where the roots of conflict are usually something else uh, deeper than, than language or the conflict between the Sunnis and Shiites. They all, all speak, as far as we can see, the same language. So um, it wouldn't be a panacea, and it would also be a... It would make a life a lot, <laughs> for a lot of school kids, I expect, though, wouldn't it? I'd like to ask Virginia to explain what bilingualism... What, how do you define bilingualism? Well, um, I think we adopt the Swiss linguist, psycholinguist, Francois Gourjean's definition, that is the regular use of two languages on a daily basis. Use, okay. Well, um, actually, people tend to look at bilingualism as a continuum rather than a categorical thing. So you're not just a bilingual or you're not a bilingual. Um, you can talk about degrees of bilingualism. Uh, some people can understand a second language, but they don't speak it. The kind of bilingualism that the two of you spend most of your time studying, uh, am I right in thinking this would be, I, I don't know what the term would be, but it would be a kind of high degree of bilingualism? Yes. Rather than somebody like me, if I go to night school and pick up another language for purposes of tourism or whatever, I have two languages, but I'm not bilingual in those. Is that right? Um we have investigated a number of children who have been exposed to two languages from birth. So they're from uh, the so-called one-parent, one-language families. So one parent speaks English to the children, and then um, the other parent speaks Cantonese. So you're talking about children who are who've been who've been operated in two languages right from the very beginning of their language yes. use. Okay. But this definition of bilingualism then would exclude somebody who picks up another language later in life. Um, well, there's a broad definition, uh, probably a narrower definition. So mm -hmm. uh, some people tend to think of it, um, think of balanced bilingualism as um, something important in order to qualify somebody is um, a full bilingual, but actually there are different types. So we consider factors like how early you're first exposed to the languages, whether you um, learn the two languages simultaneously from birth, or you learn one after the other. Um, so there are these different factors that we have to consider. So this this balanced bilingualism would, would be the quality which is so prized by employers, for example. They want people who can switch very easily and readily and naturally between two languages. I would say that's an um, idealized situation. Mm -hmm. So if you're um, balanced in both languages and you attain uh, neonative proficiency, that would be very um, the best. desirable. Yeah. Yeah. Are you bilingual? 
Well, um, I would say yes, very confidently, because I come in contact with two languages and I use them uh, on a daily basis. In, in your work and at home and That's right. Place. And increasingly, um, I have to use Mandarin as well. Are you trilingual? Yes. Um, I, I just have to be. <laughs> I would say she is, based on the definition we were adopting earlier, use of two languages on a daily basis. So at the Chinese university, many people, including Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, do actually operate. I mean, I can see her on the phone talking uh, Mandarin nearly every day. Uh, and then she talks uh, sometimes English to me, sometimes Cantonese to other members of the family and so on. So uh, um, I would see her as trilingual. Okay, congratulations. We've got you as trilingual. What about you? How many languages do you speak, Stephen? Uh, well, I uh, became bilingual in a different way, having grown up with English and then a succession of second languages, some of which I never actually spoke, such as Latin and Gothic. <laughs> uh, so do they count? Um, I consider myself bilingual today on the grounds that I now speak um, English and Cantonese on a daily basis. Uh, the others I don't speak on a daily basis, so I wouldn't. Presumably, however good your Latin became, you could never describe yourself as bilingual in English and Latin, could you? I because certainly never did, and I don't think I've ever heard of anybody describing not, themselves not so many in that way. Opportunities but, to converse, right? But as Latin. you know, in the Renaissance, uh, people did, and so yes. there, there was bilingualism mm. with uh, English and Latin, for example. <laughs> Do you know how many bilinguals there are? Let, let's stick with this idea of balanced mm. bilingualism, oh. which is quite useful, I think. Mm. So, an, an equal, more or less equal fluency in two languages. Okay. Um, in the more general sense, using more, to, more than one language on a daily basis, it's been claimed that the majority of the world's population mm, uh, will be bilingual. Is, this is really interesting, uh-huh. isn't it? Uh, but on the look, idea of looking for balanced bilinguals, our experience is that's the exception rather than the rule. So in studying uh, children from the one-parent, one-language families, um, we've really only seen one or two out of ten that uh, could possibly qualify as as Mm -hmm. balanced bilinguals. So it does seem to be possible, uh, but uh, it's almost an ideal, as Virginia said, so probably if you looked in enough depth, you would find that they were 55% one language, 45% the other language, or or something like that. So those that seem bilingual are not actually 50-50 balanced. You talk about them the majority of people in the world perhaps qualifying as some kind of bilinguals. That would be a different case, wouldn't it? There must be situations that create or encourage bilingualism in people. What would these situations be? I mean, for example, people using different different languages for different occasions to speak to different people, for different jobs... Give us some examples. Yes, well, maybe the um, clear example would be the immersion schools, like in, in Canada, where, say, if you speak English at home, then your whole school day is in French. Uh, so that sort of sets you up as uh, uh, almost um, inevitably uh, using two languages on a daily okay. basis. Now, the, the, this is interesting, but then Canada... That would be the result of a government policy. That's right. An educational right. policy, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? That mm-hmm. they want to, to produce people mm-hmm. who, who are 
bilingual in presumably yes. English and French right. would be in that case. But for most people, uh, I'm talking about a more kind mm. of, or I'd like you to talk about, a more sort of informal bilingualism where somebody, let's say in Kenya, for example, just grows up using several languages. And many, many people in many parts of the world seem to be able to have a, a large battery of languages. And they do. Yes, I would ways. say that um, perhaps the most natural way it happens is in uh, mixed marriages. Now, it happens mm -hmm. that maybe in Western countries, in, in even Hong Kong, mixed marriages are the exception mm -hmm. rather than the rule. But there are cultures in which it's it's almost required, or it is required. When you have linguistic exogamy, exogamy the culture requires you to uh, marry someone from a different linguistic group. Right. Uh, so, in some parts of South America, for example. This is Dariga, and uh, so it then uh, almost automatically produces bilingual children because they get one language from the parent from from each parent. Okay, right. And what about different languages for different kinds of work? And we've already started to talk about your work at Chinese University. Okay, you're using sometimes English, sometimes Chinese for profession in professional circumstances. Is that right? Well, it all depends on the interlocutors, uh, people who you come in contact with. Um, so some people are monolingual, some are bilingual. Mm -hmm. So as the occasion arises, you respond in the corresponding language. And in fact, that's um, an ability that uh, sets bilinguals apart from monolinguals. This is known as uh, part of your executive control ability. You're able to make the right choice at the right time. So that, for example, we can imagine somebody who's a trader who, who in order to do business with someone else, is obliged to move into a second language and then move back again for domestic purposes and so on. Must be a lot of that. Uh, that's right. Uh, we know uh, cases in Africa where that happens. So there are languages, uh, Swahili is one, which are used um, for trading purposes between people that otherwise don't have a, a common language. Yes, or Let's... I, I want to raise the question of, of big languages, of world, global languages, or I don't know, big languages seems the best term I can think of. I'm thinking of things like English and Spanish and, and Chinese because there are a lot of people in the world who are brought up in, in their own language but feel the need to learn a big language as well. This would be quite a common form of bilingualism, would it not? Yes, we think that uh, it's important to keep the small languages and at the same time you acquire a big language. So that gives you bilingualism. You don't have to give up anyone. Mm. You can be you know, good at both. With the emergence of big languages, and English would be the prime culprit in this, I guess, um, what's the effect of these big languages on bilingualism? It seems to me it could go either way. Uh, it does go both ways, that's right. So, uh, so it might encourage yes. people yes. to be bilingual or it might create monolingualism? Um, quite often, um, it goes through stages, right? So um, there is a stage in China, for example, when Putonghua is spread uh, through the school system, then uh, you have bilingualism. Uh, but 
um, unless the local language has sufficient prestige and there's enough motivation to keep speaking it, uh, eventually they they all shift to, to Putonghua. So mm. looking at different minorities in China, you can see different stages of this process. With the Manchus, it's basically complete, and they now just speak Mandarin. Uh, with the Dong minority in Guizhou, where we visited recently, it's in progress in the sense that the um, um, children are getting put on at school, and uh, depending on where you are in the Dong region, they may or may not uh, retain their Dong language as, as adults. So, I mean, the case of Putonghua, again, we'd, we'd be back to government policy here, right, in that it's obviously convenient for a, for a government to have a single language in which they can communicate with all the people within, that, within the, the country. Um, and I can imagine, I can see the process you're talking about whereby Putonghua kind of elbows out the little languages. Um, but there might also be a process in which the, the big language becomes everybody's second language and the little languages Well, that remain. seems to be what goes on in India, uh, that the um, uh, English does uh, spread, um, has been around for, for a long time, of course, uh, in, in, across the country, uh, and it doesn't seem to result in monolingual English because, mm. it, on the contrary, it, uh, typically it results in people speaking three languages on, on a daily, yes. daily basis. Yeah. You know, the linguists are really passionate about conserving endangered languages and minority languages because uh, even though you know, we just heard that there are like 6,000, 7,000 languages, but half of them are vanishing. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a serious um, problem because we're losing diversity, um, linguistic diversity as well as biological diversity. So... Um, we got to spread the message that it is important to raise our children as bilinguals in order to preserve these, uh, you know, our you know, our human heritage. So your language preserves your culture, your identity. So it's very important that we you know, get this message across. Okay, so this brings us quite neatly into the question of bringing up bilingual children. This is something that you two know a lot about, both as scholars but also as parents. So you're very well well, um, uh, prepared to talk to us about this. Tell us something, uh, Virginia, tell us something about how you bring up a child bilingual. It's not something that's going to happen naturally, is it? It was a conscious decision because uh, even before... We had the children. We sort of made up our minds. We were very determined. Uh, we adopted the one-parent, one-language policy. So basically, I addressed the children in Cantonese, um, and Steve addressed the children in English. So when they see Daddy they automatically switch to English. When they see mommy, they switch to... Um, they don't get confused? Cantonese. You don't get confused. <laughs> it must be even more more difficult for you, in a sense, because you're not allowed to speak English to them. Stephen isn't allowed to speak Cantonese. Well, I'll tell you what. Actually, we uh, code mixed a lot, a great deal. And so again, that's code quite mixing, natural. 
code mixing meaning jumping from one language to another within a conversation. Yes. Uh, switching from one language to the other in the middle of a sentence. Um, you know, this is just part of the ecology. When you listen to people, you go to the canteen, you listen to people speaking, uh, I bet you hear English words sprinkling everywhere in the middle yeah. of the academy uh, sentences. And, and yet you started off by saying that your policy was to keep them separate as much as possible. And this presumably is because you think that's the best way to encourage bilingualism in the church. That's right. But speaking from experience, or maybe I'll take this opportunity to get the message across again. If you're a parent, um, don't worry if you <laughs> end up speaking um, comic sentences or uh, you know sentences with lots of um, English words in the middle of your. So you don't have to sentences. be too rigid. That's right. Um, But that was our policy. And at the moment, we just were conducting a new project where we look at um, parents, typical Hong Kong parents, um, who speak English as a second language, and they call mix, you know, all the time. They don't have this strict, you know, line. The interesting Mm -hmm. thing is that the children going up this way uh, seem to be just as bilingual as our children. Right? So uh, maybe they're. So you didn't really need to, to segregate the languages as carefully as. Uh, as That's my it. suspicion now. Yes. Yeah. So the one parent, one language idea has been uh, around uh, a long time. But there's an interesting puzzle about it, uh, which is that um, it only results in bilingual children three quarters of the time. Uh, there is a quarter where it doesn't happen. And interestingly, we seem to get the same result with the other kind of family that Virginia was talking about, the family that uh, uses both languages uh, somewhat interchangeably, where both parents use both languages. Uh, And the success rate in producing bilingual children seems to be about the same as with a one-parent, one-language. Is is this because a, a quarter of us are just bad at languages? Uh, I don't think we really know what happens to the other quarter yet. <laughs> I could be to do with aptitude, but that would be an unpalatable conclusion for theoretical grounds. For linguists, linguists would be reluctant be, to say that. Could this be within one family? That one child moves towards bilingualism and another doesn't? Uh, it can happen. So the birth order is affected and maybe um, the first child is fully bilingual and the second or third is is not. We have heard those cases. So it could be about individual um, language aptitudes or, or whatever. I think the key to success is uh, to provide rich, authentic input mm. uh, and have lots of interactions um, by playing, just talking, speaking to native speakers of the language. Yeah. Uh, and mm, the first few years are the golden age for language acquisition. So start the exposure as early as start possible. It, start early. Okay. Would it be possible for me to become a bilingual through book learning? If I didn't have any other, well, that's cultural, of course, but supposing I didn't have the opportunity to interact with um, people in the target language. Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, Steve and I 
I've written some books in Cantonese, right? Cantonese grammar. And our readers would write to us and say, oh, hey, I've read your books and I've learned some Cantonese, but nobody's spoken to me in Cantonese. <laughs> but bilingualism might be a bit of a stretch, you think? Yes, I mean, uh, for children, we don't recommend uh, providing uh, media in place of the, the interaction. So there's a temptation to buy you know, Disney DVDs or something to uh, to provide the English. Uh, there's some very interesting research on young children showing that they might enjoy the DVD, but they don't really learn any language mm. as yeah. a result. And that's because the the DVD is not interacting with the child. It's just entertaining with the child, and that doesn't seem to trigger learning in the way that uh, talking to a child triggers learning. And the important thing is to give the child uh, exposure to the languages as early as possible mm. as the brain is uh, developing and processing and you know building all the synaptic connections um, between neurons so there's a, definitely an advantage if um, you start the learning early oh, early yeah, childhood right. okay um, I said at the beginning those of us who are not bilingual look with envy at um, balanced bilinguals of the kind that we're talking about. Would you say, Virginia, that there are cognitive advantages to being bilingual, to growing up bilingual? Um, interestingly, if you ask people um, like half a century ago, they would tell you that you know it's damaging. Oh. But given years and years of research, I can tell you um, that the answer now is that you know bilingualism especially childhood bilingualism gives you lots of cognitive advantages so from okay. creativity to mental flexibility to um, metalinguistic awareness uh, can give you a whole list and go on and on one way to think about it is that they have a different perspective on mm. the same issues or same problem um, that's also part of your mental flexibility. Mm. So there are uh, experiments um, called the moon and sun game, or sun and moon game. Um, so the, the experimenter would ask the child, can you call the moon the sun? And vice versa, can you call the sun the moon? Yes, a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you're a bilingual, uh, you think, oh, why not? Mm. <laughs> it's just a label. I, oh, I yes, I understand. So that it's actually a different. It's a more mature understanding of what language is that you get through through learning a language from a very early. That's moment. right. So uh, one of the advantages is what we call metalinguistic awareness. Uh, and if you study normal children with one language, maybe about age four, they start to make metalinguistic comments about language. But uh, many of our children would would show this awareness at about age two. So our son sort of heard somebody talking on the phone and he asked, what language is she speaking? Okay. <laughs> so because of curiosity and awareness that it's a, it's a different language. Okay, so bilingualism definitely brings cognitive advantages, particularly in metalingual awareness. That's yes. something for us to aim for. Okay, um, we've used up all our time. Thank you very much, both of you. Virginia Yip, Stephen Matthews, many thanks for speaking to it's us a pleasure. about bilingualism. And thank you for listening. 
And you've been listening to The Big Idea, of course, presented there by Professor Douglas Kerr back at the same time next week. Weather-wise, we can expect cloudy conditions, some rain patches, also some sunshine this afternoon, bringing our maximum to around 23 degrees. Mild tomorrow, but uh, appreciably or progressively cooler by Tuesday. Currently 20, humidity 86%.